open, off and Stiley Sensory stayed in the gate. There's Bo Rogue being set alight immediately by Cyril Small and racing to the lead. But Bo Rogue won't give up, he's still in front. Groucho's grabbing him now. Groucho coming at Bo Rogue, don't play, getting a rails run. Bo Rogue in front, he's got a heart as big as himself. He'll win, Bo Rogue! Bo Rogue has cracked it at last. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Sydney and provincial trainers have warmly embraced the midway races, which have become another runaway winner for racing New South Wales. It all started on July 3rd, when our Bellagio Miss won the first midway for Warwick Farm trainer Greg Hickman, who'd been an enthusiastic advocate of the concept. At Kembla Grange on November 20th, Divine Breath became the 20th winner in the series, which also took in the four pillars run at Rose Hill on October 30. The most successful midway trainer to date is Wyong's Kristen Buchanan with three wins. Trainers with two wins are Gary Portelli, Kim Waugh, Kerry Parker and Tracy Bartley, with the latter preparing the four pillars winner, Kiss Sum. Midway riding honours are shared by Jason Collett, who has wins on Dalalat, Canyonero and Kiss Sum, and Hugh Bowman, who's posted wins on Tampering, Different Strokes and Casino Mondial. Brenton Avdulla, who's still on the injured list, Karen McAvoy and Brock Ryan have each won the race twice. It's not five months old, but already the Midway has created its own piece of history and has become a major focus with Sydney and provincial trainers. I got to meet a horseman recently outside of racing, whose achievements are every bit as distinguished as those of any high-profile thoroughbred trainer. Scott Brodie has been the recipient of accolades from the New South Wales Police Commissioner for bravery and outstanding service as a mounted police officer. He's been lauded by inmates of correctional centres who've been able to find a new direction in life as a result of his work with the Racing New South Wales Thoroughbred Rehabilitation Trust. He's been a leader in the field of racehorse rehoming, the transitioning of the thoroughbred from the world of competition to the role of pleasure horse or show-ring participant. Perhaps his most important and most satisfying contribution has been the skilful use of those thoroughbreds to facilitate the rehabilitation of many returned veterans who found post-traumatic stress, depression and anxiety even more confronting than war itself. Scott's results have been successful to the extent that some of his students have stayed on as co-instructors. In 2016, Scott and three key associates formed an organisation called TVWA, the Thoroughbred and Veteran Welfare Alliance. Scott is able to coordinate his programmes in his role as manager of a company called Prestige Equestrian Training. He has the use of the company's beautifully appointed property at Helensburg between Sydney and Wollongong. Had Scott Brodie been around when Banjo Patterson was formulating his team for the pursuit of the cult from old regret, I'm sure he would have made the side. <laughs> Scott, it was great to catch up recently and to listen to some wonderful anecdotes about your life with horses. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. It was. It was a really good good opportunity to have a nag and 
um, God, when you put all that together like that, it sounds like a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> You've crammed an awful lot into how many years? Mate, it's funny that. I, I'm, I'm 57, but, you know, when – like that's the tip of the iceberg. When people sort of talk to me about the things I've had, a, I've had a very eventful life. And when people talk to me about the things I've done in my life, you'd think I'd have to be a thousand years old to yeah. to uh, accomplish all the things that I've done. I've just been very busy. <laughs> Tell me more about the Helensburg property and its development as an equine training centre. What was it before? Well, it was just a, a piece of vacant land that had been used by uh, the Department of Main Roads in the in the building of the highways down that way, and a local fella down there from Helensburg uh, bought the property. Um, there was limitations as to what could be done with it in relation to development and so on. So um, it was a, he was told he could only have livestock there. Well, it's hardly cattle country. It's it's like rocky outcrops and Australian bushland. It's beautiful, beautiful country, but. But not, but not uh, country suitable for grazing. Mm. So he built a really nice indoor facility, indoor um, training facility with a with a mezzanine, with a grandstand, and everything that you need. You know, the bathrooms and toilets and kitchens and so on. Yeah. Some really nice, uh, nicely appointed uh, post and rail yards that are sort of scattered within the bushland, which is again uh, unusual, um, but a, but a beautiful environment. Um, an outdoor arena, and uh, we've got uh, a couple of round yards, one round yard that's set up all the time, but a couple of round yards that we set up indoors if we need to. Mm. We sort of have a lot of portable panel, panels so we can uh, adjust the facility in relation to whatever it is that we're trying to do at that particular time. Mm. Scott, riding instruction is now one of the principal functions of the Prestige Training Centre. Do you supply the horses for that instruction or can people bring have- their own horse? Yeah, a little bit of both, Johnny. I have a couple of very good school horses, uh, educated school horses, not just you know, not just your average trail riding horse. Mm. And um, and people often bring their own horses for instruction. But um, yeah, very lucky to come up with a couple of good horses that are you know that cope with riders from beginners right through to to quite advanced riders based on the horse's education. Um, so yeah, a bit of both, really. Mm. You made a low key start with your unique rehabilitation program with just six veterans in the first year. Where did the veterans come from? How did they know about you? So initially um, I was involved with a fellow that had been with the Royal Marines uh, who was working with Soldier On at the time, and uh, he pulled together the veterans this for the original course, which was via Soldier On, and I, you know, I was just asked to come and be involved because I was a horseman and they needed a horseman, and um, it was on a, a property of a mutual friend, which is the Baranka property down at Kangaroo Valley. And, um, yeah, so guys came from all over Australia, pretty much every state, mm. um, Navy, Army, Air Force, you know, a bit of everything in that first course. Yeah. And some of them were pretty shaken up. They were, you know, some of them were in, had been pretty bad ways. Uh, guys, one in particular hadn't been out of his house for three years and uh, you know, a lot of them were pretty, pretty messed up at the time. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting, very interesting. Uh, that first that first course was mm. was was pretty pretty eye opening. How many return people have you guided through uh, this amazing process so far? Any idea? Well, I don't really know, Johnny, but hundreds. Um, and, mm. and we've been working with uh, with the the, the navy, um, with guys that are in rehab that are still involved with the navy um, and the army. Mm. So you know, there are a lot of people that I'd like to think we've helped. Before they get to that, to the situation where a lot of these guys are as well, you know, I think it's good that uh, the defence force is taking that approach to try and work with these guys and girls before they get to that to that point where they've fallen in a big hole, you know, try and get them, get keep them on top of it. 
You don't wait until a thoroughbred is completely retrained before you allow a student to handle it. The students actually get involved in the process of retraining. Yeah, I think that's that's the key, to be honest with you. That's the learning experience. The journey is the learning experience, and it's where the veterans get to learn about themselves. Um, they get to recognise their weaknesses in relation to communication. They have they develop great empathy for the horses because they've been through a similar process in that, you know, they've been trained for a specific purpose, but at the end of their training, you know, the things that they've been trained to do are, are irrelevant, if not negative, to, to what they're going to do in their ongoing lives. So, you know, the empathy that, that, that comes between the two is fantastic. And then, you know, there's this gradual process as they develop relationships with the horses and and see the progression and see the progression themselves. You know, we sit around and speak at night, sit around the campfire and have a chat at night. And, and each day yeah. you can hear people progressing and, and seeing the things that, that, have, that they've learnt, you know, about mm. themselves mm. Um, through the horses. Many of your students have never touched a horse in their lives and it's completely foreign to them. And some must be nervous at first. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they, on that very first course, there was one guy that was at, said he was absolutely petrified of horses. He came with his wife. Mm. He, he wasn't able to come by himself. And, and, uh, and he was. He was really nervous about being around the horses at the beginning. But, you know, just gradually introducing people, you know, in, in, a, in a systematic and, and quiet way um, helped him develop some confidence. And then by the end of it, I couldn't keep him away. Yeah. Every time, every time we were having a break, he'd want to get down there and with a brush and brush a horse, you know. So mm. it was amazing. Just that change in itself, you know, was an amazing change for that fella. Yeah. yeah. Scott, there's no doubt there is some kind of therapeutic benefit uh, when a person suffering stress or depression has regular contact with a horse. You've seen it time and time again. But why? How can it be? Oh, gee, it's, it's a hard hard question to answer, Johnny. It's funny, I've been asked that question a lot of times. You'd think I would have sat down and come up with a better answer. It's very difficult to put your finger on, but horses are very much a reflection of who we are. Um, they, they really, well, when you're working with them, they really put you in the moment, so you have to forget about the things that are going on around you that might be affecting your life. You really have to be focused and involved with the horse. Um, as I said, they 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 show us our weaknesses and they show us our strengths, mm. and uh, and you know there's just I guess history helps with that because they've been such an important animal in the history of the human race in relation to our development and our evolution um, that there's a there's a really honourable um, love for the animal that that you know we've developed over thousands of years really mm. um, yeah and so I think you know just being involved with such a majestic beautiful creature. Um, is definitely definitely good for the soul, no doubt about that. To date, we've talked of veterans who've returned from war with serious problems, but you've achieved similar results with inmates of correctional institutions who don't take kindly to contact with the outside world. Some of them are hardened offenders with little patience for things like rehabilitation. Some have never had role models and in some cases, I'm sure you fill that void. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, John. I, I, look, when I started working with the inmates, it was obviously a, a bit daunting. Um, as an ex-cop, you sort of you're not you don't think you're going to get very well received when you go into a jail. Mm. And probably, if I was just an ex-cop, um, I might not have been. I guess the fact that I, you know, my, my involvement with the mounted police, you know, with the police horses 
was 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 a little bit different. But also, you know, I think with a lot of those guys in jail, if you can prove your worth, then you're accepted. And um, I, I obviously did that fairly quickly, got the guys to understand that I knew what I was talking about. And I was there to help them, help them end the horses and help them help the horses. Mm. So um, it, it was, well, as I said, daunting to begin with, but uh, very rewarding once once we got the show on the road. And, and yeah, as you said, pretty hardened guys um, came around to gentle, you know, gentle training, gentle techniques, and, and not unlike the service guys. You know, these guys have symptoms that are fairly similar to post-traumatic stress a lot of the time, a lot of anger, a lot of lack of communication. As you said, the lack of role model, I feel like I've, I did fulfill that role quite a bit with a lot of these guys. I still have uh, contact with a lot of the guys that went through the program while I was involved with the prison. And, uh, you know, on a regular basis, they contact me and let me know how they're going. One fellow's in England contacts me on a regular basis, you know. So, um, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud to see these guys have kicked on and, and found meaningful lives. Some of them still with horses. Actually, as I speak, there are three that come to mind straight away that are still heavily involved in the horse industry and, and it's become their careers, you know. Mm. How did it all begin for young Scott Brody? Can you remember the first moment you sat on the back of a horse? <laughs> when I was a little kid, I lived in uh, in some housing commission units at the back of South Coogee, believe it or not, mm. and someone had a grey horse tied up out the back. <laughs> and, mm. uh, and a man and a mate used to go and get this horse and we'd, we'd bring it, we'd untie it and it was sort of tied to a peg or something, and we'd lead each other around. And I'd fed him. I don't reckon I was five at the time. Yeah. And I'd bring this horse home and say to him, oh, we found this horse. <laughs> take it back where you found it from. You can't find a horse. You've <laughs> stolen it, you know. Yeah. So you... we'd take this horse back, but every chance we could, we got on him and let him around. So mm. it's funny how far back it really goes when you think about it. Yeah. yeah. 200 years ago, that would have been called rustling. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been with Ned Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, those who think a professional racing stable is the only place you'll find well-groomed horses and immaculate tack, but you should go and have a look at the New South Wales Mounted Police Stables in Baptist Street at Redfern. I went there once to do a story for the Today Show, the Channel 9 Today Show on retired racehorses, and I was absolutely gobsmacked. The horses' coats were shining like satin, and so were the saddles and the bridles and accoutrements. The whole place was pristine. Yeah, it's a uh, it's pretty special place. I, I you know, obviously spent nearly 12 years there, and you go through that, there's a big brick archway. You walk through that brick archway in the middle of Redfin, and suddenly you're in another world. It feels like you're mm. out in the out in the stick somewhere in some beautiful, you know, beautiful country property. And mm. as you say, horses beautifully groomed, you know, even to the point where they, they p- polish the brassware on the taps and that sort of thing, which you just don't oh. see in this day and age, and the yeah. pipes and, uh, yeah, really traditional stuff. And, you know, it's something that I was very proud to be involved with. And, and they've got some incredible history, you know, that just goes mm. back as far as horses go in Australia, really. I remember interviewing the man in charge of the Redfern unit back then. I'm talking mid-'80s. It was Don Ibe. I think he was Sergeant Don Ibe back then. He had a great pride in his mounties. Oh, God, yeah, Ibe. He's a, just a, an absolute icon of the place, was there for many, many years as a first, second in charge for a long time and then took over the role of, as commander. Um, a very strong association with the Royal Agricultural Society, so we were able to 
will be really the last mounted police force that really has a serious involvement with the Royal Agricultural Society in that they they uh, perform a musical ride annually at, at the Easter show and they have police horse events where the horses are judged on their abilities as police horses. And, yeah, Ivy played a big part in that. And mm. Good bloke. I spent, spent, went to England with him to uh, to perform at the Royal Pageant of the Horse um, as we were, at that point, the oldest continuous mounted police force in the world and we were selected um, from other mounted units and, and military units in Australia to go and represent Australia, which was pretty cool. Mm. So I spent a bit of time with Ivy over there. It was good. Scott, it is the oldest New South Wales Mounted Police Unit in the world and it was founded by the sixth Governor of New South Wales, Sir Thomas Brisbane, in 1825 and they've been based in that Redfern property since 1907. Yeah, it's about as it's about as much history as we've got, really, isn't it? When you look at Australia, there's yeah. not many things in Australia that have that sort of history. No, it's mm. pretty impressive. The work that goes into these horses has never been more evident than it was during the Sydney anti-lockdown protests, when we saw all of that television footage of projectiles being thrown randomly at police horses. Now, apart from the toss of a head or a little shy, left or right those horses remained pretty composed. In the main, we're talking largely about thoroughbreds who usually want to distance themselves from danger, but those horses got through that ordeal in magnificent fashion. They're pretty special, Johnny. Like there's, uh, when you look at horse, a lot of horses trial out as police horses and not many make it. The ones that make it are very, very special horses. You know, I've... Uh, been involved with thousands of horses over the over over my lifetime now working as a professional horseman and uh you know i can tell you some incredible stories about police horses bravery of horses and bravery of riders on horses and um just amazing accomplishments and you know riders riding by the seat of their pants and horses totally focused on their rider to do, to do a job at hand to mm. you know to uh, deal with the situation but not hurt the innocence around um, and as you said deal with those sort of uh violent protesting type of things, which really, um, you know, there's a lot of, obviously a lot of training that goes into that on a weekly basis to have horses prepared for that sort of thing. It's the sort of thing that doesn't come up Mm. that often in Australia, thankfully, but the horses always have to be at the ready for that when the time does come. Yeah. They were not truly made ready for that. Scott, I'm sure you've had to send a number of them home because they simply couldn't cope with the stress of street work. Yeah, look, they are. Look, I, I, I was... When I first went to the Mounted Police, I was surprised at how few did make it. In about the first five years that I was there, we tried about 30 horses, and I I think one or two out of that 30 made the grade as a police horse. I think we became a bit more choosy about the horses that we started with as time went on, and uh, then there was the opportunity. uh, The government then started to buy horses. All the horses prior to that were donated, so it was just a matter of taking what you could get and hoping that you got something good out of it. But now there's a little bit of money being spent on on the base of basic horses, and so, you know, more of them make the grade now than used to in the past. Mm. Well, you must have had a pretty distinguished career with the Mounted Police because you were once the recipient of the Silver Spurs Award and the Commissioner's Citation for Bravery and Outstanding Commitment to Duty as a Mounted Policeman. Great honour. It was was a great honour. Look, the Silver Spurs, when I first went to the Mounted Police, that was the big award, and I sort of never expected. I, I went there as a, 
you know, as a very average sort of horseman, um, I obviously had a, a knack for it and it really became apparent when I got there. Um, and yeah, I was very proud when the time came when I, when I achieved the silver spurs and, uh, it's something that I hold in great esteem. The, um, the bravery award was one of those situations where you see horses and riders come together to deal with a situation in, in very bad circumstances that they weren't ready for on the day. And, um, we definitely, uh, saved some police from getting themselves very badly hurt on that day. Mm. And uh, it's a, a test to the bravery of the horses as much as the riders sometimes. You know, yeah. I've, I've competed in, in a lot of sports to a very high level. You know, I've been an athlete all my life and I've competed to quite a high level in a lot of sports. So I've put myself in situations where, mm. you know, at the end of the day, you can, you're, you're under a lot of pressure and you have to perform. Um, never have I been under the sort of pressure we were under that day. Mm. And uh, I'm very, very proud. Of the of the crew that were around me and the horses that we dealt with, the horse that I was riding was a was a horse that had almost been um, eliminated from the mounted police, and mm. we we're on our way to a parade, so we had to make things work. You know, we were told to to divert to this demonstration that was on, and um, mm. this horse was not a horse that you ever would have picked for a for a demonstration, but he had to perform, and he did, mm. and uh, it really made himself as a police horse really mm. that day. There must be a waiting list, is there? Uh- you know, for people looking for positions on the unit, it's a dream job for young people with a great love for horses. I imagine there'd be a lot of country applicants. Yeah, look, there's a lot of people that, that join the police force with the intent of joining the mounted. Some of them find other paths as they as they go through and, and some, you know, have no intention of doing anything but, but joining the mounties and I can understand that because my time was there, there was, uh, was magnificent and it's definitely made me who I am today as a horseman and and that largely as a person as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, look, there, there, there is always uh, people that are keen to get there and, and be involved. And there's a you know, fairly stringent um, selection criteria to get into the place. You've got, to be able to, you've got to be able to aim up. You have to be able to ride and you have to be able to ride in awkward circumstances. It's not all about sitting up and looking pretty. Sometimes it's about uh, just making it through. I remember mm. one young fella, the riding test at one stage, was ridiculously hard. Well, I went to England and with the boss, with uh, with Don Ivan, told the English what our riding test was, and they couldn't believe really? how hard our riding test was. Mm. But there was a young bloke there one time that was uh, he was doing his riding test, and I was with uh, Sergeant Karen Owen, who was the the senior um, instructor at that time. Mm. And this young bloke just about finished the course. He'd come over the last jump. And he was hanging under the horse's neck, wrapped wrapped around with his arms and legs around the horse's neck on the underside of the horse's neck. Goodness, and Karen said to me, "If he gets back on this horse, he passes." And this young bloke scrambled back up, you know, without putting his feet on the ground, got himself back into the saddle, mm. and that was it. He was a mounty, and still a mounty today, and doing a really good job of it. Yeah, <laughs> Scott, I believe you're still called upon to lend a hand from time to time by the mounted police. Look, I, I cherish my time there and I cherish the opportunity to stay involved with the unit. I haven't done much recently because uh, COVID sort of got in the way of things, but just prior to COVID, we talked about running a training session, the last lockdown, we talked about running a training session down at uh, my facility where we can we can do a bit of indoor training and then we can get out in the bush and work on bush searching, which is obviously you know, a big part of the mounted police's, uh, you know, work. Mm. So, yeah, we, we'll get back to that again, first chance we get. Mm. You've never had time to train racehorses, obviously, but has the thought ever crossed your mind? Oh, yeah, look, I, I um, my dad's had a couple of horses, so I've broken in a few and, and 
pre-trained a few to get them ready and and uh, I did at one stage, did a bit of work up at Ramwick in order to try and get myself an owner-trainer's licence, but things changed and I never went on with it. But, uh, yeah, no, look, I, I if I'd been involved, it would have been because it was something my dad wanted to do and I and I, uh, and I I really, you know, really wanted to do something with him, which which we did a bit and we, we had a little mm. bit of success. It was good. Mm. You told me recently that you like to get to Helensburg very, very early in order to work a handful of your own horses before your daily routine starts, what horses are we talking about here? So I've got a couple of I've got a couple of horses now that will be at some stage will be dress uh, competitive dressage horses. I've got a beautiful Andalusian mare that's mm. training at Grand Prix, which is sort of the highest level um, dressage movements. I've got a, a nice big warm blood who is a who is a brother of a horse named Allegro that won two Olympic gold medals. Mm. So I've got some quality horse there, and and I. I really try to put the best of myself into those horses at the start of the day. You know, after I finish riding those, I'll go and ride another 10 or 12 and, and give lessons. So it's a big day, mm. but uh, I'd really like to try to get there early and focus on mine and make sure they get the best of me, you know. Mm, how early? Oh. <laughs> In the dark, uh, look, you know, not, as early, not, not as early as race trainers, <laughs> sort of 5 o'clock, that yeah. sort of thing, you know, make sure that I've – but I get a, I like to have a couple of hours with them before I have to. So I'll spend an hour, hour and a half on each horse mm. before I start my day. Yeah, Scott, just stand by for a moment. We're going to clear a commitment on the podcast. We'll be back with Scott Brody after this. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up, the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B-group vitamins and vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30 mil of Recuperate drawn from the 500 mil bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code JohnTap.Racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase. Being around horses day in and day out comes with the inevitable hazards. But it's quite bizarre that your worst injury was sustained in a boating accident. (laughs) Yeah, you've spent a lot of time in the surf life-saving movement over the years and you were actually on voluntary duty one day when an unthinkable accident occurred. Are you okay to talk about it? Yeah, sure, mate. Yeah, look, it was, again, at the time I didn't realise what an important moment it was in my life and it was a very negative thing at the time. But in a way, it probably led me, well, it led me back to horses and it led me back to, it led me to understand how important horses can be in the healing process. So like, we were in a we were in a race, a surf boat race, um, and we, you know, I've been involved with the surf club for over 30 years and done my, my time on the beach patrolling and so on, always done my bit there and um, boat went end over end, which, you know, it wouldn't be the first time that's happened to me. I've been, you know, I had plenty of times where I've gone end over end, but I got trapped between – I was sweeping. I was a guy at the back steering. I got trapped between the sweep oar and the side of the boat, and I could hear things cracking and popping in my body, and I knew it wasn't good. I sort of thought oh. – really thought it was probably over. I, I thought I'd broken my back, and 
and I was trapped under the water with with a lot of pressure coming from from the big wave that had that had taken us. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I I when the wave stopped, the pressure came off. I tried to swim to the top, and I was under the boat, so I came up under the boat. Had to go back down again, and thought I was going to drown. When I finally got to the surface, there was an oar in front of me, and I was able to throw my arm over the oar. But I'd done a fair bit of damage. I had 11 rib fractures and two fractured vertebrae, a punctured lung, and some um, very serious damage to my shoulders required surgery. So mm-hmm. it put me out of action for a long time. I was in hospital for a few weeks, and mm-hmm. and it was a, it was definitely uh, one of those life changing moments where you you, know, you saw your life flash before your eyes. I thought I was gone, mm-hmm. um, well, from, and it meant it meant that I basically the business that I had at the time I lost because I couldn't work for. Yeah. About six months, and it was a pretty, yeah, pretty depressing sort of time, really. Mm. How did you climb out of it? Well, I, as I said, I, I got to a point where it was obvious, like, well, I'd lost my business. I couldn't go back to the business that I had, and um, I sort of said to my wife, I've got to work out what I do next, and she said, well, you've got to go back to horses. Horses is what you do. So an opportunity arose with the Mounted Police. They were preparing for some um, big event at the time, and they were looking for to get people that could obviously train a police horse back in to train some horses, get get the numbers up. And uh, so I went back in and did a little bit of contract work for them. And and I thought, well, this is it. This is what I do, you know. And then uh, then the Australian Turf Club were looking to set up mounted security. So they um, asked the mounted police, how would you go about setting up mounted security unit? And they recommended me. So I mm-hmm. took up a role with them, uh, initiating their mounted security unit, which became an award-winning security unit and uh and really got dug myself out of a hole by by uh, burying my head in horses again really mm. well you recently co-authored and co-published a lovely little book called conflict to hope which takes the reader from the evolution and the history of the horse through the many roles uh, the marvelous animal has filled down through the ages and there are some honest and very moving contributions from those who found direction and peace from a connection with horses. Your collaborator in this project is your colleague and great friend, Dr Melissa Baker, a remarkable lady who overcame a traumatised childhood to go on to a very fulfilling adult life, which includes service in the New South Wales Police and the Australian Defence Force. And you tell me, Scott, she's a delight to work with and an inspiration to all who seek her help. Yeah, she's a pretty special person, Johnny. She's um she's had a pretty tough life, um, in in lots of different ways. And you know, I sort of talk about I like to talk about post traumatic growth. You know, I like to see people try to grow out of bad circumstances, and she's a pretty good example of how it can be done. It's not always easy. You know, she's falling into holes from time to time, and occasionally, and she'll call me, and we, she needs to have a conversation, and we and we work through things, and we try and help her find her feet again and and you know, she seems to always seems to be able to do that now once upon a time she couldn't mm. um it's it's uh it is very rewarding when you to, to see people like mel that have kicked on and and um some of the other vets that have kicked on to do to go on to do really good things to help people you know which is which is really you know there's nothing better than do it to feel good than to do something that makes people feel good to help people is really good for yourself so yeah, my word. Yeah, it's great to see that now, how can uh, interested parties pick up a copy of this little booklet, Conflict to Hope? It's very easy to read, less than 100 pages by yourself and uh, Dr Baker with wonderful input, I noticed, Scott, from former Marines, 
former sailors, soldiers and airmen. All those, all those quotes of those people in that book are, you know, really honest and heartfelt. And you've read it, you understand what I'm saying. There, there's a, a lot of honesty and a lot of you know, hard things to say, but they've said them. Look, the, the best way to get hold of that book would be probably to um, contact the Thoroughbred and Veterans Welfare Alliance on their Facebook page, the Thoroughbred and Veterans Welfare Alliance. Yeah. And uh, on Facebook, and um, definitely uh, help people get a copy of that. It's worth. It's a worthwhile little read, mm, and it's right. a prelude to a documentary that that we've that we've recently um, just about just about ready to release. Actually, right now, where do we see the doco? Well, the doco at this stage, we're not sure. It's it's the jo- the doco is finished. It's a magnificent piece of work by a director named Nick Barkler. Um, I'm very very proud of of the story, but I'm very very proud of the work that Nick did as well. Um, again, at the, at the property at Kangaroo Valley at um, Baranka and following us for three or four years through the process of starting with with a, with a group of veterans and where they finish up. Mel, Mel Baker is one of those that that, we, that is followed through the doco. And it'll be um, – there will be some showings in Sydney, but it will be – we'd like to think it'll be picked up by one of the, um, one of the uh, television, probably pay TV mobs, and, and hopefully uh, people will get the opportunity to see it on a much broader scale. Mm. Um, I'm really looking forward to people seeing it. It's, it's a very worthwhile, and as I said, beautiful piece of filmmaking. Mm. How long does it run? Runs for about an hour, mm. um, and it's a it's a it's a very emotional hour. You know, uh, I, I, obviously for me, it's a difficult thing to watch because I'm I'm yeah, the people are people that I've dealt with and still deal with on a on a very regular basis. So, um, but. Yeah, it's it's a powerful thing that that uh, is quite sad at times and very uplifting at times as well. Mm. Apart from your programs with the veterans and the inmates from the correctional centres, riding instruction is obviously a major part of your working week. Now, I imagine some of the people that come in have got a bit of an idea. They can sit on and simply want to improve their talent, but others are starting from dead set scratch. Johnny, I'm I'm very very passionate passionate about the instruction thing. I've had I've been lucky enough to have magnificent classical instructors over the years. That my journey's been pretty special. You know, I've had people that are you know directly associated to the great classical schools of Europe, and um, I've had been in the situation where I can utilise those those that learned skill. You know, as a in a practical application as a mounted policeman, and then running the thoroughbred retraining program for racing New South Wales, training hundreds of ex-race horses. So the hours that I've been able to put into it based on what I've learned, you know, you know, utilising the skills I've learned from these classical trainers um, puts me, uh, you know, puts me in a pretty special situation. And I, I love, I have a real passion for passing on correctness in riding. You know, there, there's a lot of people that sort of jump on a horse and think they're riding. Mm. Riding is a very intimate thing. And if if it's done correctly, uh, the vocabulary that you can have between a horse and rider mm. is ridiculous, uh, far underestimated by the average horse person and definitely by the average member of the public. So I know that sounds, sounds a little bit flowery, but, uh, you know, I, I really want to see people, as many people as I can, you know, follow on the tradition that I've learnt and the tradition that my instructors learnt that goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years, you know. Mm. So I, you know, I put a lot of time and effort into making sure that people learn very, very correctly from the beginning. And a lot of the time, the hardest thing is trying to unteach people who have learnt the wrong way from yeah. the beginning. But uh, that's, a, that's a skill in itself, you know, mm. trying to help people through but 
not uh, not make them feel like they've wasted ten years of riding in the process. Yeah, yeah. You've got to undo <laughs> bad habits. There's no tougher job. Not much harder. Much harder. It's much easier to start with a clean slate. That's for sure. Mm. Now, mate, there is one special horse that I'm delighted to mention, and I know you'll be delighted to talk about him. He's a remarkable thoroughbred who found his way into your place after an unspectacular racing career which brought him only one win and one placing from 22 starts. His win was in a Maruya Maiden a few years ago with Adrian Late in the saddle. His name is Bazaconi, and he is a perfect illustration of what can be done with these off-the-track horses. Tell me about the first time you jumped on Bazaconi. Yeah, look, he was a tricky horse, Johnny. I'd been told he was a tricky horse, and, and I heard that a few people had been injured riding him. Uh, I went back and looked at it. He looked at his looked at some photographs I got on one of the sites, the racing sites there, and, and noted that uh, there was no photo of him where he wasn't being led by another horse, which led me to believe that he wasn't going to be an easy thing to control. Um, and he had some pretty serious um, uh, psychological, mental issues, if you like. Just before even getting on him, it was difficult to get near him, you know, to get him to to show, show some trust and and um, and to just slow down and think a little bit. But I, so I spent a lot of time on the ground with him first. And normally, when I do that, spend a lot of time on the ground, I get a pretty good result. But the first time I got on Baz, he just twisted his back, put his head up in the air, and took off across <laughs> a very small arena, flat yeah. out. Yeah. And we, I had no control at all. And he sort of almost ran into the fence on the other side and then turned around and ran back to the other way and mm. nearly ran into the fence on the other side. So I went, well, there's some work in this. I'm going to I'm gonna learn here. This is an opportunity to learn. Mm. So uh, you can only look at it as that sort of thing, try and get the best out of things. So I sat down and tried to work out how I was going to go about sorting Baz out. And I spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, probably mm. – a lot more time and effort than most people would have put into a horse that was like that. Um, I'd imagine that in most cases, his future would have been pretty uncertain based on on his on his mentality yeah, and his yeah. physicality. He had some physical issues as well in in the way that he used his body. But you know, we worked away and worked away and gradually started to get some respect from him and some response from him and got to the point where we were able to take him out and to do a dressage competition and he was you know reasonably successful, put on quite a good show. Yeah. And then, you know, the, on one of the first courses that I did, one of the first courses with the veterans that I did, it became apparent that his sensitivity, his incredible sensitivity equated to incredible intelligence mm. and the ability to be able to read people and read people's body language very, very well. Um, and so getting people to work with Baz and, you know, being able to control their their emotions and their body language was a, was quite a challenge. But he he turned out to be a very very good teacher. So he's finished up uh, being involved in a lot of the courses that we've done. And one of my volunteers, a, a young girl who's one of my volunteers, has taken him on as her horse. So she owns Basaconi now and, mm. and still rides him and enjoys him. Um, but from time to time, we still bring him out and use him um, when we're doing work with the veterans. Mm. And he's fantastic. And, very and very special. Scott is completely trustworthy these days. Absolutely, yeah. No, he's uh, look. I've had him in with. I've had him with some people that, whew, man, it's hard enough to get people into the arena, let alone get him in with a horse like that. But, but you know, he looks after him. He looks yeah. after him. He does just what he needs to do to get the job done. Mm. And uh, you know, he's probably well. He's helped as many people as I have, I'd imagine. Mm. At a lovely lunch a few weeks ago with you and your wife Tina, 
my wife Anne, and of course uh, our good friend Dr. Ross Fitzsimons and his wife Amy. And needless to say, horses dominated the conversation. But it was a pleasant change for me because instead of talking about racing uh, all the way through the luncheon, we did hear horse stories from a different world, and I enjoyed every moment of it, Scott. It was a delight. Yeah, they create stories, horses, don't they? And it was it was really uh, a, a joy to uh, listen to you and your wife speak about your involvement with horses, you know, in and out of the racing industry. Um, you know, horses draw people together. There's, there's commonalities over, you know, all different fields of horsemanship. Scott, I'm, in closing, I'm going to go back to that lovely little booklet, uh, Conflict to Hope. There are many wonderful quotes in that book from people who reap the benefits of equine therapy, I think we'll call it. And one of the best quotes is from Mel Baker herself, and I'd like to pass it on. She says, A horse helps you to get back in touch with your emotions and indeed yourself. Through connecting with a horse, the self emerges. Without talking about it, a horse helps me feel again and makes me express myself in ways that humans don't even understand. This in turn helps me and others to become more effective and more engaged. And they are the words of Dr. Mel Baker. Yeah, beautiful words. She's, she can put it together, Mel. Um, yeah, it's great, great to hear that. Scott, thanks for joining us on a podcast on a very wet Sunday morning in Sydney. You're having one of your rare days off. Enjoy it, and I hope we can catch up again in the very near future. Yeah, great, Johnny. That'd be fantastic. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Good to talk on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. The catalogue for the 2022 English Classic Yearling Sale is now available. A total of 810 yearlings have been finalised for the sale, 600 in Book 1, 150 in the Highway Session, all to be offered at Riverside between February 6 and 8. 700 of the entries are Bob's eligible and there are Vobus, Westspeed and QTIS yearlings also on offer. There's an enormous range of proven stallions represented as well as first crop yearlings by exciting newcomers like Justify, The Autumn Sun and Trapeze Artist. The classic sale has seen unprecedented growth in recent years with 10 individual Group 1 winners since 2018. Eight of those have been purchased for $100,000 or less, while 14 graduates have won a million dollars or more in the same period. The classic sale gets the English show on the road for 2022 on February 6, 7 and 8 at Riverside. And the catalogue is out now.